it happened in November in Iowa. He went after his mother with a hammer. This is Donald Trump destroying Ben Carson during a rally in Fort Dodge, Iowa, roughly four years ago. We're going to talk a lot in this episode about some of the fluctuations in Iowa, and it made me think about where we were at this stage last cycle. And it reminded me of the surge of Ben Carson. Not unlike Mayor Pete, this was somebody that kind of came from out of nowhere, but seemed to be resonating with the residents of Iowa. Of course, he was not the only dark horse in the Republican primary race. Donald Trump was also there. And so this magical moment was made. During one of the famously freewheeling Trump rallies, he decides to go in on Ben Carson using the good doctor's own book, which is also adapted into a movie starring Cuba Gooding Jr. Indeed, before Ben Carson became a brain surgeon, he was somebody that had a very rough temper. And so Trump goes through these stories one by one. The time he swung a hammer at his mother, the time he hit his friend in the face with a padlock. But this is the big one. He took a knife and he went after a friend and he lunged. He lunged that knife into the stomach of his friends. But lo and behold, it hit the belt. It hit the belt and the knife broke. Give me a break. Give me a break. Give me a break. The knife broke. Let me tell you, I'm pretty good at this stuff. So So let's zoom right by. We don't know exactly what Trump's referring to when he says he's very good at this. But right now, you can kind of barely hear it. He is doing a little bit of physical comedy as he steps from behind the podium and is flipping his belt back and forth to show that if somebody tried to stab you, the belt would fold over. And he plunged it into the belt. And amazingly, the belt stayed totally flat. And the knife broke. How stupid are the people of Iowa? How stupid are the people of the country to believe And this? that's the moment that wound up getting circulated the most. Donald Trump saying something that only Donald Trump can say. How stupid are the people of Iowa at a rally in Iowa? Now, I would love to draw some clean line that shows us how Trump is Elizabeth Warren and Ben Carson is Pete Buttigieg or maybe even vice versa. But I can't because this is very unique. There is one message, though, that got very little play in the press that I do want to bring up. And this is more about Elizabeth Warren. This is at that same rally. But I found it to be far more instructive of the Donald Trump strategy than him just going off and trashing a rival. Again, I'm a religious person. I'm going to protect people. I'm going to bring back people. Because say what you want about Christianity. As a group, we haven't done a good job in protecting our religion. We really haven't. We've let government take it away. We've let government take it away. Pastor Jeffers, who's a real nice guy, you know Pastor Jeffers, he's on television the other night, and they're asking him about Trump. He says, yes, he's a Christian, and he's a good guy, he's a good, he's not your typical Christian. 
But you know, sometimes we sort of do a little sacrifice because he's an unbelievable leader and he's really smart and he's going to protect us. And maybe that's better than having a perfect Christian that doesn't have leadership ability, which is, you know, going to happen, that doesn't have certain other qualities. Because we need somebody that's going to be a leader and protect us now. I'm going to protect everybody. Because I know how to do it. And this is what my friend Brian Brushwood would refer to as address and dismiss. That many times, in terms of effectively communicating, if you know there's going to be a hang up in somebody's head, the immediate first question they're going to ask, then you can get halfway to alleviating that concern by simply addressing it. There's been a lot of hand-wringing on exactly how much of an evangelical Donald Trump is, how good of a Christian he is. But listen to what he said there. I'm not the traditional Christian. He, He puts it in the voice of somebody who should be a moral authority. That this is not a piety contest, This is a contest of leadership. Don't think of me in terms of whether or not I have lived my life in decadence with multiple women violating every commandment you possibly can and then bragging about it to the New York Post. But rather, think of me as a protector. Because if I've done that For my fortune, if I've done that for my family, if no matter how hard people want to get rid of me, they can't, then what will I do for you? You have addressed the problem. A Bible villain wants the church people to vote for him, and you have dismissed it. This is one of those things that in the risk-averse political world, I think is more needed. And it's a lesson that Elizabeth Warren can learn. She's had some really, really, really bad polls come out, and we're going to talk about them. But they all stem from her inability to explain Medicare for all on both sides of the issue. To progressives, that she will be a stalwart that will make sure this happens. To moderates, that it's not the worst idea in the world. It's an issue that's hard for her to talk about, but it's always one that she's been forced into conversation on. If she addressed and dismissed, I think it would have been better. If she would have said, is it going to be expensive? Yes. Do we have the final plans on it? No. We want to make sure that we get the best deal, and that's not going to be something that we can negotiate until we actually get into the White House. So... Here are the broad sketches. It's Medicare for all. If you work at an insurance company, sorry, suckers. In fact, it's something that Bernie Sanders has done very well. Is it going to cost more? Yes. How much more? We'll find out. But but don't run from the question. He never, like, he he, he eventually gets to, the, the, the quality of care is going to be so much better. But he doesn't run from the pocketbook issue. He says, yeah. It's going to be more. It's going to be worth it. Trust me. Address, dismiss. I would like to address you, the dear listener, for listening to me on this Thanksgiving edition of the program. And it is at the largesse of those that support us 
at TakePoliticsSeriously.com that I welcome you. Folks, PX3 begins now. Well, hello and welcome, everybody, to our Thanksgiving edition of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast, November 27th, 2019. It's your old boy, Justin Robert Young. And I got to tell you, we got nothing for you. (laughs) At least nothing in the way of news, man. Uh, Thank God we had this poll come out and now we can focus on the free falling of Elizabeth Warren But other than that, impeachment's on hold until after Thanksgiving. We're probably going to get a report not long after that. We haven't really seen much in the way of how things are going to go. But that's pretty much it. Other than that, everybody's traveling today. Everybody's out there. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see everybody when they get back. And that'll go for about two weeks. And then we'll have a Christmas blackout. That being said... We do have some good stuff for you on the show. We are going to talk about Elizabeth Warren in depth. And I'm bringing the turkey. Well, more specifically, it's an interview about the country of Turkey and Syria, all about the history of uh, uh, those two nations. And we're going to go back pretty far. That gives you a lot of context into what is happening currently with Erdogan and Assad. So not fun Turkey. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm sure Turkey can be fun, but the country of Turkey. But I thought it was, I don't know. That and I'll answer your mailbag questions at the end of the episode. But first. Those are the cheers of Elizabeth Warren's followers, the Warren Commission to some, as she approached a gigantic inflatable version of her dog, Bailey. That event happened on November 1st, when Elizabeth Warren was, according to the Quinnipiac University survey, the frontrunner nationally. It was when, according to Real Clear Politics averages, she was the frontrunner in Iowa. Today, as I speak to you, at the end of the month, November 27th, she is neither of those things. Now, of course, this phenomenon could just be the regular course of politics, or it could be a curse. And for that, we bring on our number one course, uh, curse correspondent, Andrew Eaton <laughs> of the Political Orphanage. How you doing, yeah. buddy? Uh, very well. A lot of people forget of my my robust background in voodoo. It makes me <laughs> yeah. uh, an expert on curses. Uh, you know, they, 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 uh, several baseball teams have me come out and walk <laughs> around the field to try and undo whatever the goat thing that happened with the Cubs. There, exactly. Yeah, that's you know. made sense. So, if you ever see if, if you ever see around your uh, major league sports stadium or arena a a, a tweed suited Heaton uh, just throwing up blades of grass and looking into the <laughs> (laughs) the uh, pupils of all the different staff to determine exactly how much they've been felled by the occult. You know why? Uh, So I'll tell you, this is my take on, on Elizabeth Warren, because your, your theory is that 
Bailey the inflatable dog is literally <laughs> cursed and has scuttled her her prospects, right? I'm I'm just look, I'm just going to point out the facts and then we can hash this out. I'm just asking questions. I'm, I'm just, just asking saying questions. here are the facts, all right? In early November, we saw Elizabeth Warren at her strongest point and it began in Iowa, it trickled through to some of the national polls. And it was uh, entirely pronounced in New Hampshire. So this is November 1st. According to the Real Clear Politics Average, she is at 22.3 of averaged, right? And that is leading everybody, leading Biden, leading Buttigieg, leading Sanders. That is when big structural Bailey <laughs> makes an appearance uh, in one of the most bizarre videos of the campaign season thus far. Since then, she is now in third, possibly fourth place, depending on the poll, with an average of 17.7%. That is a five-point fall from grace in Iowa, specifically, where Big Structural Bailey made its hideous appearance on this race. What Instantly, what are the two pennies on its collar? Is that some kind of clever... So that Symbolism is, here? yeah, there's, there's two meanings to it. Number one, that is her two cent wealth tax. So that is what the, the wealthy would oh, be paying okay. past a certain uh, number. It's also a little bit of like, you know, it's her two cents. She's got a plan for that. Uh, and if you go to her website, you can buy pins with that design on it, which might be the best metaphor for Elizabeth Warren yet that you can get a photo representation of two cents on a pin for $10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think this is the problem with Bailey here. And, and this is the problem with Elizabeth Warren as a candidate. Uh, Elizabeth Warren and everybody that loves Elizabeth Warren thinks she's adorable. Yes. Everybody that doesn't like Elizabeth Warren thinks she's the church lady from Saturday Night Live in the 90s. <laughs> and the more they heap on this, like, oh, she is, oh, she's just a grandmother, but she's super smart. And she's running for the good of the people. Like, that doesn't play if you're on the church lady side of things. If you're on the church lady side of things, she's this kind of um, quasi-socialist scold who clearly hates all Republicans and never says anything remotely nice about anybody she disagrees with. And... Uh, uh, and then has, like, is constantly looking up and to the left in photos because she is dominating this sense of uh, kind of self-righteous ascension. You add an inflatable dog to that, and <laughs> it just it, it just makes the contrast even more stark, I think. So you think that, that this – all right, so if we are going to take my, my, my curse idea seriously, which I'm very excited about, then that this is an actual highlighting of a character problem for her. She she just can't wrap her head around exactly who she is and who she's projecting to and, and, and instead does the mistake of just assuming that everyone's going to view her with the best intentions. Yes, I think that that's fairly accurate. And I think that also belies one of the fundamental flaws in the democratic strategy where like I'll, I, I've been in several rooms now over the last two years where I'll, you know, I was living in New York for a while and someone will stand up and go now clearly. We all wish Bernie Sanders were the president. We all believe that. <laughs> but the question is, 
is he pragmatic enough to get elected? And I'm like, hold on a minute. Yeah. <laughs> like I speaking on behalf of roughly half the country, if not more, I don't wish Bernie Sanders was president. Uh, like, like that's a pretty big if there. Like in, in your mind, the debate is, is he electable? And in my mind, it's should I elect that guy? I think with with Elizabeth Warren, the there's a plan for that. Like I think with I think the Warren camp, I think what they're trying to figure out is um people are not um, responding to my Medicare for all plans sufficiently well. Okay, well, I'll begin by really over-explaining it, which she she did a decent job, I think, on. I, I read her editorial on that. She did go through point by point. I, I thought that, you know, it, it wasn't all bluster. There was a lot. For for any anybody running for president, it was a pretty well-outlined strategy, and that didn't work. And she's like, well, okay, well, we'll go the other direction now, and we'll have the most obtuse uh, adorable, cute visual thing that's not wonky at all. And then there's this there's this whole group in the middle that's like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's not that you haven't properly explained the concept to me. I understand what you're trying to do. I think it's a bad idea. You think that you need to that, that, that I'm failing to understand what you're achieving. What I'm telling you is I very much understand what you're trying to achieve, and I don't think it's a good call. And now you're giving me an inflatable dog. I do like the inflatable dog more. It was a lot more heartwarming than reading the editorial, but I'm not on the spectrum of inflatable dog to wonky whiteboard that you believe everybody else is on. How famous would a pet of yours have to be to get a gigantic two-story inflatable version of it? <laughs> Maybe. Didn't some dog recently like – like, like like President Trump like knighted a dog that had killed Baghdadi. I, I don't know. I'm clearly <laughs> well. No, screen. that was no. He put a Photoshop up, which is among my favorite elements of of this bizarre, uh, uh, you know, the, the the Trump presidency, which has so many firsts. But one of my favorite is that now, whenever he posts a Photoshop, there has to be some writer from the Atlantic that does the deep dive to find out that indeed it was a Photoshop. <laughs> like he didn't actually award the medal of freedom to a dog. Donald Trump is not actually Rocky. Uh, that is a poster <laughs> from the movie directed by Sylvester Stallone. What, what, what I would love is there's the big inflatable uh, Trump baby float, right? Um, they, they, they fly that in England, uh, and maybe over here. I don't know, but I know. They oh, fly no, that. no, no. Yeah. No. Did you hear about it? It suffered a terrible fate. Oh, really? What happened? Did it, did it Hindenburg? Uh, they decided to bring it to the, uh, Alabama LSU game where Donald Trump was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> where Donald Trump was uh, appearing. And, Wait, uh, hold on, hold on. So don't tell you what happens here. I just want to be clear. This They decided to take it. To the deepest part of red country where every one of their dog owns a handgun and yeah. then fly it at a large public event. Okay, yeah, go on. What yeah. happened? Well, it did make it out of Tuscaloosa, Andrew. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it got knifed and uh, uh, I, I'm amazed that's all that happened to it. I, like, I, I'm almost kind of disappointed in the state of Alabama that somebody didn't bring out a Luger uh, and just start firing holes at it. Yeah, uh, that was that was one of those where like, I don't know, because I think they're British, the people that do that. Uh, yeah. I don't know if they Fully this, show, this is good satire. Yeah, this, 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 everything changes now because I've I've seen that a bunch of times in person. Like it's always at Politicon. It's always uh, you know in in the caucuses and stuff like that. But by and large, fairly Tony, fairly metropolitan areas where like performance art is understood as just a thing that happens here and again. Yeah, not so much in the tailgate of the Alabama Crimson Tide. 
Yeah, that was, I mean, I, I guess to their point, like, I do appreciate them trying to Trojan horse it into the, into the territory. Like, like, uh, so, so, uh, I, I, uh, I summer in Wagner, Oklahoma, uh, where my family <laughs> owns a cabin. And whenever I drive in there, there's all these billboards that are like, uh, you know, evolution's a lie. God made us 3000 years, like that kind of like very, and I'm like, why are you putting this up in Wagner, Oklahoma? Who are you trying to reach here that, like, you know, Richard Dawkins doesn't summer in Wagner. They ought to no. put that stuff up in Manhattan. That would make more sense. If you want to buy an evolution billboard, put it in Manhattan. So maybe it's the same thing. If you want to fly, uh, float a uh, a large baby Trump uh, balloon, doesn't make a lot of sense to do it in, in Manhattan. Then again, I don't really think those things are designed to, to convince people to vote your way. I think it's designed to egg on your group. No, I, I don't I don't quite know if uh, a, a group of folks who are maniacally rooting on 18 to 20 year olds to uh, you know possibly paralyze each other for no money and a gigantic spectacle uh, is is really the crowd that'll be like well I don't know maybe Trump is a baby <laughs> you know I never thought about the 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 possibilities of a, a proto authoritarian regime with <laughs> ethno nationalist pretensions before, but now that I've done seen that blimp shaped like a baby, I have to rethink a few things and go back and read some Edmund Burke. He probably would have voted for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, yeah. you know what I would what I would watch is I, I would love if if uh, this became a part of the American electoral process if every candidate had to have a float and they fought mm. and and it, yeah. like you know. It did, didn't actually affect the outcome of the election, but but I'm sure that there would be people that would be like, but really though, it is a prognostication of things to come. Bailey did pop the balloon, uh, and and the you know the 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 the, the Joe Biden float. Of, so you'd have to so you'd have to put weapons on him, right? Or at least yeah. like spikes. Some element. Basically, what was that old show where the robots beat each other up? That's Battlebots. Battlebots. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, with exactly. blimps. Battlebots. That Battlebots, but with blimps of the various kids. And I guess they can they can. Select whatever they want. It doesn't have to be them, right? So, so uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren can go in with big structural Bailey, and uh, Bernie Sanders can make a big float of the 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 damn bill that he wrote, and uh, <laughs> you know, I guess Joe Biden can have a big corn pot. No, no, like, Bernie Sanders would just have a giant Metamucil bottle. Uh, yeah, there we go. Float, float around hacking. Um, <laughs> can, so, can, would you would you mind? Can I can I go off on a substantive political diatribe for a moment on In, Elizabeth Warren? Indeed, yes. Hold on, but before we actually get into worthwhile <laughs> political conversation, I mean, I'm happy to talk about battlebots. No, it's fine. It's fine. We'll get off my nonsense. You don't right sound after. like it's fine. Is that like I, no? We will. I just want to get one more thing. Uh, uh, okay. So I asked you how famous a pet would have to be. Do you want to take a guess on the Twitter followers of Bailey Warren at First Dog Bailey? Gosh, um, I'm guessing 200,000. And, and that actually, by the way, that is smart. Not the float, but yeah. trying to get your dog to run for first dog and just tether your campaign to that. That's actually very intelligent. Uh, 24.9 thousand, meaning I have more Twitter followers than Bailey the dog. Wait a minute. Hold on. So, okay. So, so Justin, uh, in, yeah. in my personal life, we were just talking off, off camera yeah. that I'm planning on, um, living someplace in 2020. This is one of my grand ambitions. <laughs> a it's bold, fun. a bold, a bold strategy for you, Andrew. <laughs> get, get, getting an address instead of staying at our friend Brian's former nudist colony, uh, <laughs> on a deflatable air mattress. Uh, and, uh, and, and part of the strategy is also for me to get a dog. Um, I have thought about in 2020 running for vice president. I don't want to be president, but I've thought about running for vice president because yeah. that sounds pretty fun. Maybe I should just skip that entirely and just have my dog run for first dog. And I think that uh, might and be if the that's way to the go. case, 
Um, I get to live in the White House. I don't have any proper role other than I'm the first dog kennel master. And, and I, I would insist on, on either living in the White House or the dog lives with me. I just, I'm just saying we're not – I wouldn't give my dog to the winner of the election. I'm, I'm sure Justin Amash is great and everything, but uh, <laughs> I, I get to keep the dog. Uh, but, uh, yeah, maybe I'll do that. That's actually a smart move. All right. Now, uh, we will get to your, 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 sub, your, your substantive point now. However, on the Bailey Twitter account, you can text Bailey to a number – and I assume it puts me on some text list, but I kind of want to see whether or not the automated response is in the voice of <laughs> Bailey should, the dog. Justin, you, you should get a burner phone like the, the, the way I do for my, you know, my heroin deals. You could get a burner phone for uh, for, for contacting uh, political operatives mm. uh, without being inundated with phone calls from them for the rest of your life. You only get the regular phone calls for, uh, you know, open enrollment robocalls exactly. or whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's opening now and, and there's a lot of uh, problems with Obamacare. You know what? You want to know what? I'm going in dirty. Bortles! I'm sending it. All right. So we'll see whether or not I'm putting my phone down. And as we wait to whether or not Bailey the dog barks back at me to let me know that <laughs> Medicare for all is actually the way, please go ahead with your substantive political point. Ah, okay. So um, now I, I know that we've talked about this before, so I, I won't go over – I won't regurgitate the same information about how the, the, the Bernie Sanders fever dream of Denmark as a socialist utopia is not in fact a socialist utopia. Yeah. Um, I, I'll, I'll give a point to Sanders and I'll give a point to Warren. Um, Point to Sanders, I think that he is honest in telling people that Medicare for all will require an increase in taxes. Yes. Um, her, her plan, and I think part of the reason she's doing poorly right now, is that every policy wonk in the United States um, took a hatchet to her plan. And, and it's getting way more scrutiny than anybody else's, and in part because it's robust and in part because it has a lot of points to it uh, instead of a vague thing. But basically, the, the long and the short of it is – um, one, her plan would not a- actually g- generate sufficient revenue to cover Medicare for all. There's not enough rich people to soak dry based on her plan to make that work. Uh, and two, the the proposed wealth tax that she would like to do, which is a 2% tax on wealth as opposed to income. So in other words, rather than the, the money you're making every year, it would be the money you have in your bank plus your house and your boat above a certain threshold. Um, that's been tried by pretty much every other – um, uh, you know, liberal democratic capitalist regime, and they they always abandon it. It doesn't work very well, right? So she's getting a lot of blowback for that. Uh, Sanders, I think, at least acknowledges that we would pay more for that, and I'm actually more open to that. Um, I like I I have a touch of social democrat in me, uh, and but but I we need to be aware of what that what that bargain is that that all of our taxes go up, and nobody's afraid that we're going to go bankrupt if we get cancer. Okay, that's a good conversation to have. Um, I think the 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 Warren conversation of I promise there will be no raise on taxes for the middle class ever, and it will just be the evil rich people. Um, that I think is disingenuous, and uh, and I and I don't think it would play out. But where I will give a point to to Warren that I won't give to Sanders is Warren at least wants to squeeze the rich people dry for a specific purpose. Sanders just wants them to not exist anymore, and that <laughs> yeah. is a, that is a big big difference there, right? So like Warren at least doesn't like want to outlaw uh, billionaires. She she just wants to tap them like a keg. Whereas Sanders thinks that every billionaire is a foreign policy failure, which again is not a very Denmarkian or I should say Danish way of thinking. Like if you, uh, I, I had a listener on my program uh, who's in um, Sweden, uh, and wait, is it Norway or Sweden? No, excuse me, Norway. And uh, he was talking about how there's, you know, pr- proportionally there's more billionaires in Norway uh, per per capita than there is in America. Um, like the Scandinavian countries are very pro billionaire, but uh, that they, you know, but they also have higher taxes on the middle class and that kind of thing. And I and I don't. 
Um, I, I don't I, I don't like that mindset of let's let's just punish billionaires for being successful because I think they'll just leave. Well, that would seem to be what history has told us when it's been tried, right? And and granted, yeah. leaving uh, one uh, country in Europe for another country in Europe has less of a pain to it than, let's say, an American billionaire leaving America. Although once you're a billionaire, mm-hmm. that is a little bit easier to do. Uh, yeah, you know, I I think that Warren's big problem, if we're being serious here, is not necessarily the fact that she's cursed by a gigantic plastic inflatable dog, but rather <laughs> that she has uh, she get she ran aground with this Medicare for all thing, and now she has found herself attacked on both ends. Moderates don't particularly like the plan, and mm-hmm. progressives don't believe she'll actually carry it out, which is the worst of all worlds for her because. Mm-hmm. She either can be the more effective executioner of these ideas than Bernie would be, which theoretically would be her brand, or she's got to run away from them. And right now she's doing she, – she's kind of doing both at the same time because she releases the more detailed version of her plan, which I don't know exactly – that's really what anybody wanted. People just wanted to ask, hey, our tax is going to go up. Right. Liz, yeah. the answer is yes. Yes, they're going to go up. <laughs> You're going to get better care. We're done talking about this. Instead, yeah. she puts out this plan that has so many different uh, uh, vectors to it. To her credit, it's very detailed. To her discredit, if it's detailed enough to be destroyed. And, and the thing that I found in it was, I think it's, uh, I'm sorry, Warren Hive, for getting this uh, uh, inexact if I do, but I think it's like, you are at 12 employees. If you go beyond 12 employees, then you now have to pay into Medicare for all of them in the same way that you would a, uh, uh, you know, pay for their private insurance. But if you're below 12 employees, the government just pays for your employees' insurances, which to me sounds like a recipe for a lot of 12 company or 12 yeah. employees. It sounds like if, if, you're the, if you're the 14th most productive person at your firm, you are boned. You yeah, are about right? to get fired. Uh, I hadn't wait. That's part of the Warren plan. That's part of the Warren plan is oh, how God, well, because yeah. she wants to protect small businesses. And that is how she does it is by drawing the line of how many employees are, are there. Uh, and then I, I looked that up comparatively to where we've historically put, the description of what a small business is uh, based on the government. And, you know, it, it, it's not quite. Uh, not yeah. Quite okay. There. So here, uh, here, here's when, when I run for vice president, my dog runs for first dog. This is yeah. what we're going to do. Go ahead. We're going to, we're going to reboot the wig party. Okay. Uh, and I, I have no idea what the wig party was actually in favor of. I assume wigs. We're just taking the name, right? Here, here's, here's how this is going to work. Everybody gets healthcare. We're going to have universal healthcare. Uh, we're going to raise the taxes. Everybody gets free vocational training and a couple of other things too, right? So we're going to raise taxes. Everybody gets some goodies. That, uh, I'm establishing that. That's out there, right? But we're not going to regulate anything between consenting adults uh, or businesses or or private individuals unless it causes blood to shoot out or a, a direct property damage or health concern, right? So like, if you want to have 15 people in your company, we don't care. If you want to pay somebody $3 an hour to do a job, that's fine. We're all consenting adults here. We're not going to get in the way of that. We're not going to 
have all of these complicated org charts with red string where we've got a bureaucrat working out how many people can be in your company before you know the provision to form B blah 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 thing kicks in. We're just gonna redistribute some resources and leave everybody the hell alone. I mean, vote Heaton's future dog. Also, I need to get a dog. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, but by the way, now now the casting is really on because you know that there's more at stake here <laughs> than just getting an adorable pupper. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I I I have to say. Bernie Sanders since his heart attack, I think has run a very good campaign, about as good of a campaign as anybody could run. And part of it is, and especially compared to Elizabeth Warren, I don't think it's it's a coincidence that one is in one is rising and the other is falling. He's clear. And that's yeah. like he's he makes the decision you have to make on Bernie Sanders is about one of two things, primarily the ideas. Are you for do you think billionaires should should exist? If the answer's yes, then Bernie's not your guy, right? Bernie's betting that there's enough people out there that do believe that billionaires should be hunted like the world's most dangerous game. Uh <laughs> and and similarly for Medicare for all, for the Green New Deal. He's like, Yes, I'm here for these things. Are they going to be insanely expensive, beyond comprehension? Yes. Will we figure out a way to pay for it? Yes. How? By shaking the Monopoly man upside down until all the money falls out. Uh, whereas Warren is is just she's she's run away from it. And the other thing was that after she has this Medicare for all payment plan rollout, she then comes out and says, we're not going to do Medicare for all until after the midterms of my first term, which. Yeah. I I God man I would love to be in the 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 the, the big brain session the pitch meeting. So here's where, what we're gonna do: uh, take your signature policy and say you're gonna delay it, and then how do you feel about inflatable dogs? Because yeah. that's, that's <laughs> step two of my my brilliant campaign plan. Uh, yeah, I think you're right on both cats. I think with um, I think there's two phenomena going for Bernie that that Warren doesn't have. Um, uh, I, I would make a distinction between Bernie and Warren. Bernie's not a head thinker. He's a gut thinker, right? Ber- yeah. Bernie, Bernie and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and for that matter, Donald Trump and another, a number of other people. I, I don't I don't visualize them sitting at home reading uh, policy papers from the Center for American Progress. They're, what they're doing is they're spending all of their free time walking up a hill with their fist in the air singing, we will overcome. Yes. They, they're, they're, they're generating an emotional state and they're driven by by creating emotional states, which is very appealing. Very appealing to voters, right? And it's a lot easier to understand that than it is a head thinker like Elizabeth Warren, which I'm, I'm more sympathetic to. I appreciate, um, while I disagree with the wonky application she has of trying to interpolate the federal government into every single transaction that could possibly exist, um, I do appreciate that she is trying to figure out how to get her uh, her tinker toys to, to work in this complicated thing and all of that. Um, but but it's it's going to be – voters are going to have a more visceral reaction to, to the gut thinker than the head thinker because when you start getting very heady and very head thinkery, it sounds like you're prevaricating and it sounds like you're, you're trying to explain away something and you, you become more shifty in the same way that optimists always sound worse than pessimists because pessimists sound like – um, doom, doomsayers yeah. sound like they're giving you the truth. It's a hard truth, but I'm telling you the truth because you need to know. Whereas an optimist like me, I sound like I'm trying to sell you insurance. I sound like I'm trying to sell you a, a, a you know a condo or something because I'm all chipper and everything, right? So I, I'm always going to have that to overcome. The other thing that I think the Bernie Sanders has that, he'll, uh, that that Elizabeth Warren doesn't have is that um, 
you know, like, uh, granted, this is only one instance, but I think it's somewhat emblematic. Sanders went on Fox. And I got to say, yeah. I was less worried about Sanders after I watched him on Fox than I was before that. You know, I watched him and was like, all right. And I but there's some small, granted, it's very small, but there's some small portion of the electorate that um, is conservative leaning or, or Republican leaning, but registered Democrat that probably saw that and went, oh, oh, OK, I get it. You know, blue collar. All right. Uh, Warren's not doing that. And I, I don't see her being able or willing to go into to enemy territory quite as much in building those bridges. And and for that reason, she's very, very appealing to people that are very, very progressive, but uh, has less of that cross appeal that, that, uh, that Sanders is able to do with, with a broad populist movement. I, I think that that is probably the, the be all end all there is that there has a tendency to be in both parties, this desire to have the best candidate on paper. Right. Like and this was Marco Rubio on the GOP side in, in the last cycle where it was like, all right, young from Florida, uh, Hispanic. Hispanic, speak Spanish, like hot cheerleader wife. Like there is like a lot that is there for uh, uh, the the like on paper Republican uh, candidate. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the rubber hits the road and he flames out. Because politics isn't done on paper. <laughs> like, you have to actually get out there and be under pressure and, and figure out how you deal with these decision gates. And that, to me, is something that, like, Elizabeth Warren has gotten, A, the, the troubling thing, I think, for Warren's campaign is that a lot of these decision gates that she's choked on, she made. Like, the, how are you going to pay for Medicare for all? should be the first question you're expecting, right? Like, you should mm -hmm. have a very pithy, practiced answer to that in the way that Bernie, again, it's like, on one side, Medicare for all, how are you going to pay for it? Joe Biden, you can't. Well, imagine you can't, but slurring. And then uh, <laughs> Bernie's like, oh, uh, it's going to raise taxes a lot, but you're going to get a lot better care and no one's ever going to, you know, die on the street of cancer or go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. So it's like, right. cool. I know and understand that answer. I know and understand yep. that answer. Now I can make it up. I'm not you know, put into this weird J.J. Abrams mystery box of maybe <laughs> my ideal scenario is behind all these words. Yeah. Did you did you see the Saturday Night Live sketch, uh, the, the, the pro Warren sketch they released about four night ago? We've got a interview coming up uh, next week talking about SNL impressions and mm. uh, boy, howdy. Do I I love Kay, uh, uh, McKinnon. Yeah, uh, yeah, she's a fantastic actor. And I think that she did maybe the best political impression in recent memory with Hillary because oh, yeah. it was kind of mean <laughs> because a lot of people think <laughs> Hillary is kind of mean. Right. So it it revealed this kind of universal truth. And I think, you know, based on her uh, singing Hallelujah after uh, in, in costume after Donald Trump was elected and how she's portrayed Warren, I think she thinks that she was too mean. And I think that that's why we have a, a, an intensely toothless Elizabeth Warren impression from one of the most talented cast members. And, and apparently the only cast member who's actually permitted to play a character as opposed to just finding whatever celebrities in town to put on a wig. Yeah, it could be. I, I would also be curious to hear what's going on in the writing room, because in, in the way that I mentioned earlier, the the aforementioned individual who will stand up and begin a speech with, we all wish Bernie Sanders was president. It would not surprise me if that is the uh, uh, the predominant narrative within the Saturday Night Live writers room uh, that, you know, we all wish 
uh, that, that you know, uh, the, the other thing, too, is that I think like um, I, I, I don't like hearing this phrase about political satirists uh, because it so rarely is accurate where they'll say, well, you know, he, he makes fun of both both teams. Um, and like you look at like, say, like uh, the Daily Show under under Stewart, yeah. um, it would be like Mitch McConnell's an evil turtle. And then it would be like, Diane Feinstein sounds like your mom. Oh, she's so momish. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. This, this is like, exactly equal opportunity here. Yeah, the Ted Cruz is, uh, you know, a, a puppet of all of the worst Bond villains ever. Uh, and, and, and Joe Biden, he's too nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Joe Biden uh, uh, just broke his finger grabbing for a Werther's original. Like he's old. <laughs> Get it? All right. Yep. Uh, uh, one last thing about Elizabeth Warren, and this is uh, to, again, prove my curse. Uh, new poll out last night from Quinnipiac. Before I read it, let me read the previous poll that they ran. That one had Warren uh, as the prohibitive leader, 28% to Biden's 21%. In the poll that came out a month later, last night, Elizabeth Warren down to 14% to Biden's 24%. That is a... 14 point free fall for Elizabeth Warren in the same poll. That's not comparing it to another one. That's that's the same methodology. So whatever's happening with her, it is an absolute off a cliff uh, dive at this. Point. She she is the Herman Cain of 2020. This is her her Medicare for all is the five 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 or whatever. Nine nine nine. Right. Nine nine nine. The nine 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 plan. Uh, yeah. All right, and maybe maybe uh, uh, she'll go and start a pizza company. We can um, only hope. So, uh, I, all right, to, to wrap this up here, I got a text back from Bailey. Oh, nice. All right, here's the deal. Uh, Bailey alert, it begins. You're signed up for periodic photos of Bailey and other campaign updates. His mom is running for POTUS, and he's hitting the trail. More photos soon. Uh, and then it has a little disclaimer at the bottom, but it does come with a big old picture of this dog, which now I'm totally in on the idea of harvesting my data so I can just get a dog photo here and again. Uh, you know, I, like I got I actually think that's very clever. Having your dog run for president or for first dog is very, very clever. I, hats off to the word, uh, the Warren Commission on that one. There we go. All right. Uh, Andrew Heaton, your podcast is called The Political Orphanage. Uh, you actually had a, a couple of really good episodes go up. Uh, any ones that you want yeah. to highlight specifically? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll say there's two that I that I really enjoyed here recently. Um, we did for for people that enjoyed me um, slagging on Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren economically. Uh, about two weeks ago, I had on uh, Josie. She's also known as the the redheaded libertarian, uh, who's a flamethrower on Twitter. And she came on and we talked about um, about uh, wealth taxes and just kind of the, the 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 Warren and Sanders wing of plans and that kind of thing. Um, here this week, I had on Ken White. He is known as Pope Hat on Twitter. Who I, uh, who's fairly well known, and, and I got to say, a very wry wit, a very funny guy, and had a great chat with him about free speech and how public decency laws work, what you can and can't say. Um, it was basically, if you're worried about putting something on a billboard uh, and whether or not you go to prison or not, this is the episode to listen to. And I, I dare say it is both informative and funny simultaneously. And, uh, and then the week before that, I think you would have enjoyed this chat, Justin. I, if, if, if we'd figured out how to do it technologically, you would have been a good, a good guy to loop in on it. Um, my old producer Jenks came on and we had a good hour long chat that began oh, with this whether guy, the Jennings, <laughs> get out of here. Cause he wants to get all, he wants to get all fired up and I, I, nobody is hornier for the idea 
that Hillary Clinton is going to run for president than the, my the conservative friends. I know I 100% agree. Oh with my god. Yeah, the... I I do not think Hillary Clinton's going to run. That said it's a fun episode and we actually we we use that as a kickoff. Uh we have um have you have you seen the Hillary Clinton gridiron dinner uh, uh sketch? Uh Oh, I'm going to send this to yeah, you. Send you're this not to me. This. You're going to eat it up. Oh, you're gonna, I'm making a note right now. We do that. And then I we get into a bunch of cool abstract stuff. Like uh, I I I kind of differentiate economically between fascism and socialism and that kind of thing. So if you have any listeners that are like getting an erection when they see a Nolan square, <laughs> uh they'll really enjoy that. Uh and and I'll tell you what. I'm sure it's a sizable demo. Uh ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> uh Andrew Heaton at Mighty Heaton on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us, buddy. Thanks you, man. Have a good week. Politics. Guys, I have to thank you personally. I posted in this feed, the politics, politics, politics feed, a preview of my brand new history series, Raise the Dead, yesterday. The feedback on it has been overwhelming. Uh, uh, you guys are, are uh, too kind and uh, it's really made me feel amazing. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who has listened to it and has given me feedback. If you would like to listen to it, then please go ahead and do it. It's in the feed right now. Raise the Dead preview. It is effectively episode one. The official feed will launch a week from yesterday, December 3rd. And at that point, we're going to try and push it to the moon. So put it on your calendar. On December 3rd, I will, uh, you know, send the word out. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Justin R. Young, and uh, just subscribe to the new feed. Wherever you subscribe to podcasts, subscribe to the Raise the Dead podcast. We only have really a 24-hour window to try uh, and, and get all the new subs we can to get up as far up the, 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 the charts as we can uh, and, and try to attract other uh, other people who are interested in history and stuff like that. So, um, you know, what can I say? I worked really hard on this, and I'm very excited that you guys seem to be enjoying it. If you're unfamiliar, Raise the Dead follows the 1960 election of Kennedy versus Nixon, which in my opinion is a under-talked-about and under-understood election. And specifically, if we knew more about that 1960 election, we probably wouldn't have been as surprised when Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton. Because indeed, Donald Trump is not the Nixon figure in this election. He's the Kennedy figure. And I'm pretty sure that there's compelling evidence to show that the Trump campaign knew it. In the meantime, I am also gearing up for the primaries. If you want to support me going out on the road to Iowa, Nevada, California, and Florida throughout the primaries, then head on over to our uh, Patreon, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And thank you to everybody who just gave me money straight out. Uh, if, you, if, if Patreon isn't your bag, you just want to give me a lump sum of money, then uh, you can do that. PayPal.me slash Justin R. Young. Politics! My guest today is Nora Fisher Onar. She's an assistant professor of international studies at the University of San Francisco, and she is the author of Istanbul, Living with Difference in a Global City, 
She is going to help us understand a different kind of turkey here on Thanksgiving week. Welcome to the show, Nora. Thank you for having me. All right. Obviously, Turkey specifically uh, and our their relationship with Syria, the United States' relationship with Syria is something that has very much been in the news. In fact, it might have been the last big news story before the impeachment gobbled up every little bit of oxygen in Washington, D.C. But as we like to do here on the PX3 show, we like to get a lot of context on some of these conflicts. So let's start uh, uh, with with the big picture, uh, the relationship between Syria and Turkey from the meta view. Okay, and I think here it's, um, it's really important to emphasize that um, uh, some of the way that this has been presented in sort of the public um, discourse is uh, doesn't do justice to that context and just how complex it is um, and just how fluid it is, in fact. So um, thanks for giving me an opportunity to kind of put things um, in, his, in, in their historical place. Um, so, uh, as you know, many of your um, listeners may know, um, uh, Syria was once a part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, so both Turkey and Syria are successor states to the Ottoman Empire. Um, to date, there's about 18 of them. Um, so it was a big empire, covered a lot of what is today called Europe, um, the Middle East, and Africa. Um, and that empire came to an end um, with the end of World War I. Um, and at that time, it had been in, in um, retreat for a long time. It had been contracting for a long time um, because lots of the peoples around the empire were seeking independence under the rubric of sort of new nationalism, which is starting to be the, kind of the big fad for how you um, identify yourself and organize your, um, your societies and your econom- uh, economies. Um, and so these old empires, like the Habsburg Empire, the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Tsarist Empire, they, um, they were all kind of under uh, a lot of pressure. Um, and so the Syrian state emerged um, as one of the final territories um, to be uh, to sort of um, be broken away um, from what became uh, the core territory of the Ottoman Empire that became the Republic of Turkey. Um, and it, initially, the um, the Syrian state was under a French mandate, which basically meant the French colonized it. Um, but the French were pretty eager to have Turkey on their side during uh, the build-up to World War II um, because that um, real estate that Turkey and Syria uh, are located on is, is pretty valuable real estate in the great game of geopolitics. Um, and so the, um, the French government basically sort of um, worked closely with the, the Turkish authorities um, to eventually overseeing the return of um, the province of Hatay, sort of this um, territory that is um, part of this contested space where a lot of, um, a lot of today's you know, uh, tumult is going on. Um, uh, that, that territory was returned to Turkey by the late 1930s under the mandate of the League of Nations. Um, but the, the sort of the demographic makeup of the area remained, remained very mixed. There's um, uh, Turks who are um, predominantly Sunni, but also uh, Alevi, uh, Alevi Turks. There's Alawite um, uh, Arabs in the um, Syrian space who have similar kind of religious practices, as, um, but not, not identical to, to Turkish Alevis. There's um, uh, Kurds throughout this space. There's um, uh, lots of Christians, um, Middle Eastern Christians in this area. Um, and so um, sort of the story of the, the, the nation states moving onwards over, the, uh, over much of the 20th century was about kind of how to reconcile this you know, demographic messiness, um, all of these 
hodgepodge identities um, with the nation state projects that were becoming you know more and more um, in the sort of um, pronounced um, in both um, Ankara and in Damascus, the capitals of the two countries. Um, and I guess um, sort of fast forwarding to, to the Cold War, um, uh, all of this sort of um, translated into, into um, some pretty interesting Cold War dynamics in the region as well. Um, so basically, uh, Turkey um, was sided with the U.S. Um, Turkey is an electoral democracy. Uh, Turkey was, uh, you know, one of the early members of NATO and was a front, frontier state um, facing the Soviet Union. Um, and Syria was one of the closest allies of the Soviet Union in the Middle East, um, heavily authoritarian, especially once the, um, the Assad regime um, came to power. Uh, and so, you know, Turkey and Syria sort of looked at each other across this Cold War frontier with um, a great deal of uh, suspicion. Um, and that suspicion acquired sort of a, another layer of complexity um, when Turkey started dealing with a, a Kurdish uprising, um, really pronounced since the 1980s. There have been other Kurdish uprisings beforehand, but this one um, uh, mobile, uh, you know, eventually came to, to be sort of channeled by um, a militant group called the PKK. Um, and they waged a war with the uh, uh, for for a separate Kurdish state um, with Ankara for much of the 80s and 90s, um, and the Syrian government, you know, uh, very much used this sort of Kurdish card as a way to um, to put pressure on Ankara. So they would host the the leader of the PKK, um, provide him with uh, safe havens, and in fact, um, it was only when when Ankara sort of demanded um, back in the late 90s that. Syria turn him over, or at least um, kick him out of the country. Um, this is the, the, the leader of the PKK, Abdelogelan. Um, uh, Turkey sort of lined up a bunch of troops at the border and said, you know, it, it, it's him or us. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, Ojalan um, fled the country and then was soon captured. Um, well, and can, we, can we pause just, just real, real quick? I do want to get a little more into kind of the history of the Kurdish population because sure. that, that remains not only a main factor in some of our contemporary issues, but also the, the Kurds have played a large part uh, of the role in like the war in Iraq and, and some of the settlements in the northern Absolutely. parts of that region. So can you just give us a real quick primer on who the Kurds are and, and why they have continued to, to you know play this sort of a durable, outsized role in, in the politics of the region? Sure. So, yeah, the Kurds are um, a... Um a minority group um, who uh, are sort of arguably the largest minority group in the world that doesn't have their own nation state. Um, and they're spread across uh, sort of a geographically contiguous, um, but, uh, not, uh, but but divided um, territory um, uh, in uh, most, uh, many in, in Turkey, but also in Iran, in Iraq and in Syria. Um, and so while the, uh, the four different governments um, uh, don't, don't get along about um, much of anything, one thing <laughs> that they have long been agreed upon is that they do not want the Kurds um, in these adjacent areas to, um, uh, to get a separate state out of fear that it's going to spill over into a secession movement within the respective countries. So, yeah, so no, um, nobody wants any Kurdish state in any of those regions because one Kurdish state could very quickly expand to, uh, you know, annex all of their uh you know exactly. borders yeah 
Exactly. That's the sort of the, the, the kind of the logical place that that, 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 that sort of mobilization could um, evolve into. Um, that said, there's a lot of differences between the, the region's Kurds, the languages that they speak are all part of the same Kurdish Indo-European um, uh, language family, but they're very, very different dialects. Um, they don't necessarily belong to the same sort of um, uh, religious uh, traditions. Most are Muslim, um, but not all. Most are um, belong to a certain branch, they, they follow a certain branch of um, jurisprudence within the Islamic tradition, but not all. So, um, so Kurds are very diverse across these different countries. Um, but yeah, sort of the, the, the sort of the worst nightmare um, of, the, of the region's um, uh, governments um, is that uh, at one point, Kurds are going to, you know, kind of mobilize across these borders um, and demand their own state. Um, and in fact, there's a historical precedent for it in that after World War One, when the Ottoman Empire um, did collapse, um, the, in the first treaty, um, that was made with the, the, you know, the, the fallen empire, um, there was a provision made for an autonomous Kurdish, um, uh, homeland within this, uh, within the space. Um, but then, um, the Kurdish nationalist, uh, the, excuse me, the Turkish nationalist movement mobilized and managed to overturn, um, the terms of the treaty. Um, and that, that project of having an independent Kurdish state in the region was, um, uh, was cancelled. Um, uh, but uh, ever since then, it's long been regarded, especially in Turkey, in Ankara, under the rubric of kind of a, um, it's called the Sev Syndrome, after the name of the treaty that was, uh, that had initially authorized an independent Kurdish state, among other independent states in there. Also, there was space, there was provisions for an independent Armenian state as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has all, uh, all been kind of a, a um, uh, created a sort of a trauma in the sort of the geopolitical imagination of the people who governed um, the Republic of Turkey, um, who felt like, you know, what given the opportunity, the West is always going to try and sponsor a Kurdish state in the region because it gives them leverage over us and over all our neighbors. And so there's been a, this is called the Sev syndrome in Turkey. So there's, there's a lot of um, suspicion about any sort of Western support for um, Kurd, Kurdish activism in the region. Um, so that's kind of the historical, you know, the very, uh, um, the deep historical background, um, but then there's also um, a sort of more recent pieces to this. So after the, um, so so the Kurds didn't get their country, yeah. um, and they didn't necessarily want, you know, not all of them wanted it either. Many fought on the side of Ottoman authorities. They fought to preserve the Ottoman caliphate. Uh, many Kurds are very pious um, Muslims and. Um, and didn't want the European colonizers or um, what would become a sort of a very Western-facing Turkey, of, uh, sort of a culturally Westernizing project in Turkey to take over. Um, and so there was a couple of rebellions in the um, first part of the 20th century, but these were very often um, not really rebellions. They were in part rebellions against sort of the project of Turkish nationalism, but they're also rebellions against the project of Turkish secularism, because at the time Turkey was undergoing a cultural revolution and, you know, got rid of the caliphate and got rid of uh, sort of all of these traditional institutions of, of religious governance and really wanted the, um, really wanted the whole population to kind of internalize this very sort of French style um, hardcore secularism and Kurds being pretty religious, um, a, lot, a number of Kurdish groups pushed back against that. Um, so there's been a history of Kurdish rebellions, but by the 1980s, interestingly, a part of the Kurdish um, sort of uh, restlessness um, be, uh, took the started to take the form of a sort of a very left wing um, form of mobilization against the Kurdish state. Um, so that's that's really the origins of the PKK. That story kind of uh, really gotcha sort of picks up speed in the in the in the eighties. Um, and this is a this is you know not a religious movement at all. This is very secular Marxist. 
um, left-wing um, uh, movement. Um, but then with the end of the Cold War and with the sort of, you know, when, when, when left-wing politics lost traction, um, it became more of a just sort of straight-up nationalist movement, but secular. Um, and uh, eventually, not immediately, but, you know, over a couple of um, uh uh, over a couple of years and, and sort of intensive negotiations within the Kurdish movement actually became a feminist movement as well. So that's one of the reasons, um, fast forwarding to today, yeah. um, that it's gotten a lot of sort of publicity and, and, and appeals to, uh, you know, a number of people in, uh, among, or a number of Western observers because it's really the only sort of, um, you know, full fledged, um, sort of feminist uh, militant movement in the world, and and uh, and yeah, this is not to say that that um, again, Kurdish society is much more complex um, than all sure. of this. But yeah, yeah. it's um, uh, the so, but 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 all of those those pictures that we're familiar uh, familiar with from the media over the past years of these Kurdish women fighters, along with the other Peshmerga, you know, being the boots on the ground against ISIS, um, they're a part of that strand of. Um, the uh, the the, Tur- the Kurdish and Syrian excuse me the Turkish and the Syrian um, Kurdish um, militant movement. So so real um, real real, is, real, yeah. real quick before we get back into Turkey and Syria specifically, one more question mm-hmm. about the Kurds. It, mm-hmm. What is the reason? Because I'm sure that there are many, many, many ethnic minorities throughout the Middle East that uh, I, as somebody who pays attention primarily to domestic politics, has no idea of. And yet mm-hmm. the Kurds continue to pop up uh, as pivotal players in various different separate international uh, flashpoints across that region. Is there an origin point for the United States' relationship with the various uh, different Peshmerga forces or, or the Kurdish minority in general? Um, well, yeah, I think it has to do with um, uh, the, there's you know a number of uh, pieces to that story, of course. Um, but I mean, I think it has to do with the confluence of you know uh, um, United States uh, in particular and Western engagement with the region in general sense. Um, uh, since the end of the Cold War with the first Gulf War, um, and then with the second Gulf War with um, American, uh, the American presence um, in the region and, and the and Americanist allies. Um, so, um, you know, once you get into, once you uh, have boots on the ground in, um, in uh, central and northern Iraq, um, in western Syria, um, uh, and you're kind of a player in that great game of Middle Eastern politics, has been sort of, you know, the the this is sort of you know uh, primary kind of um, U.S. foreign policy agenda and U.S. Um, security policy agenda for um, for much of the uh, two, um, uh, 2000s and 2010s and then certainly of course with the rise of Al Qaeda and ISIS in the region um, the Kurds kind of emerge as this um, uh, player um, in this in this I keep referring to it, to it as a great game it's kind of like a game of chess um, but they're kind of um, a player with you know a substantial um, number of uh, well-trained, you know, disciplined um, troops on the ground. Um, they're players with a story to tell. They, they, there's a story of both um, victimization by the different governments that they've been uh, a part of, but also they have the kind of the underdog sort of story that, 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 that and, and, um, an appeal that is can be projected to um, Western audiences and uh, appeals on, and, and 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 that makes them very useful allies for any external actor who wants to have a say in the region, um, but finds it kind of uh, finds working with you know Ankara, Damascus. 
delicious or um, Baghdad prickly to say the least. Um, so, um, so it's partially just a matter of sort of the geography, I think, yeah. um, and the demo- and, and, and presence in that geography and aspirations within that geography. I mean, it's also part of a result of um, sort of very strategic, you know, framing of. Um, Kurdish concerns uh, by uh, diaspora and 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 um, you know representatives of um, Kurdish groups um, in Europe and the United States. Um, so uh, they've um, I, because I think I think I would venture to say that you know ten years ago I don't think um, I, I I doubt you you would have heard of um, Kurds as much, but it's it's sort of you know um, it was this perfect cocktail. Um, when yeah. it came to U.S. involvement in the region, the whole, you know, the, and, and then and then with U.S. sort of retraction from the region, sort of the collapse of all these borders and the emergence of all of these um, really radical actors, and the Kurds emerge as kind of, you know, somewhat reasonable interlocutors. Um, but of course, in this context, the U.S. has kind of tried to, um, the U.S. Rec- recognizes the PKK uh, as a terrorist organization, as does the EU, um, as Turkey repeats in all of its, you know, kind of diplomatic engagements. Um, but but, you know, given this kind of very volatile and geopolitically important context, um, the U.S. is really try- kind of trying to maintain um, sort of a fiction that that the Kurdish forces in Syria are not the same as the Kurdish forces in um, Turkey. But there is indeed some some congruence there. So, um, so yeah, it's a uh, they, they uh, Kurds are definitely not um, um, willing to sit around and be um, uh, yeah be um, the passive uh, actors in the redrawing of the region's borders. So, so moving kind of into the beginning of our modern era, obviously there's a lot of turbulence as there seems to always be in the Middle East, but in the seventies, you have the Islamic revolution in Iran, you have Mm -hmm. the Gulf war in Iraq. What are the big issues facing Syria and Turkey at that time? So this is, I'm sorry, can you just repeat the time frame again? Just at the, um, 80, the 80s and 90s, moving into the 70s 80s and 90s. 70s and 90s. Yeah. Right, okay. So um, uh, so as I mentioned, you know, within Turkey, uh, Turkey is confronting uh, radical violence um, from uh, Kurds, but also other across the, the ideological spectrum. There's far left violence, far right violence. Um, and and uh, this is not um, in, in the context of colder politics, as I mentioned, this is uh, this kind of plays to um, uh, sort of um, plays to the hands of Damascus, um, uh, who basically kind of try, use you know sponsor um, uh, the PKK and, and 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 provide some some support to its leadership um, as uh, as a way to kind of uh, put pressure on Turkey. Um, but by the 90s. Um, uh, this starts to change. Um, you know, Russia becomes a much more uh, insignificant um, uh, player in the region in that period. Russia is very sort of in a very navel gazy moment at that point, um, and um, uh, Turkey uh, un- first under um, the the pre um, AKP pre Recep Tayyip Erdogan government, um, but um, certainly um, once. Uh, the AKP comes to power in the early 2000s. So this is the political party, the Justice and Development Party, led by um, Turkey's current president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's, who's been the leader of Turkey for 17 years now. Um, so uh, certainly when he comes to, uh, comes to the helm, um, uh, Turkey's kind of looking around at it's, it's starting to come into its own as um, an economic player. It's starting to come uh, into its own as a sort of a diplomatic actor. 
um, and it's pursuing new membership on one hand, but it's also looking to its immediate neighborhood and trying to figure out um, how it can, you know, expand trade relationships and um, and and just become more of a voice and a leader in the in the region. And so uh, this period is kind of a honeymoon phase between um, Ankara and Damascus. Uh, uh, they, they, the, the leaders visit each other quite often, um, and you know, Syria really becomes kind of Turkey's um, doorway to the to the Middle East, with which this government in particular was very interested in engaging, um, both because it has uh, sort of religiously conservative or um, it's, I, I hesitate to use the word Islamist because it has um, it's a very contentious word, but yeah, the, the Turkey's. Um, uh, you know, this this particular party and political formation in Turkey has uh, has sort of Islamist roots, and mm-hmm. um, and so there's an attraction to the Middle East as a region, and Syria is kind of a perfect um, pathway uh, via which you can send, um, you know, engage the Syrians themselves, um, but also engage in trade, you know, uh, through Syria with uh, the rest of the region. So there's kind of a burst in um, uh, bilateral and multilateral. Um, engagements and trade, and it's um, it's this kind of um, honeymoon period uh, that was on the, in, in the words of the then Kur- uh, Turkish um, foreign minister, was kind of termed a period of pursuit of zero problems with all of these contentious neighbors, um, including Syria. Um, but that all really falls apart with the Arab Spring or the Arab uprisings of 2011, um, because initially, you know, there was a lot of euphoria that the, many of the authoritarian governments in the region were being challenged by democracy protesters. Um, and Turkey sort of um, jumped on that train thinking that these are going to culminate in victories for religiously conservative democratic players across the region in Egypt and Tunisia um, and in Syria. And they really placed uh, sort of put all their chips on um, on the Syrian uh, opposition's uh, eventual overthrow of the Assad regime. Um, but the Assad regime has no intention of going anywhere and clamps down, you know, with extreme um, <laughs> uh, force on, on its civilians, yeah. which leads then to the radicalization of Sunnis in Syria and so forth. But then Turkey finds itself basically getting stuck into the Syrian quagmire, um, which occurs in the meantime where it say, aha, Here's a situation where the borders in the Middle East are starting to get rewritten. We have a, you know, the Kurds already have an autonomous region in northern Iraq as a result of the um, U.S. invasion. Um, and here's an opportunity to carve out some autonomous spaces in western Syria, adjacent to, you know, or very close to that, um, the, the borders with um, Iraq. And so this sets off sort of existential warning bells um, in Turkey. It's that worst case scenario I mentioned for all of the governments of the region um, of uh, Kurds getting their act together um, in these in these, you know, adjacent um, territories. Um, and so at that point, um, you know, Turkey has tried everything it can to um, remove the, um, the Saud government, both in terms of diplomatic pressure, really highlighting the human rights abuses at play. Um, but, uh, but um, by, yeah, that, 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 that turns out not to not to make very much difference, um, especially because then uh, Russia um, and, uh, and is now kind of you know, wants to become a player in the region again. Um, and uh, Iran, who has uh, stakes in the region for a variety of reasons we can also discuss, um, they also kind of get behind the, the government in um, Damascus. Um, and so um, then it becomes, you know, a very uh, complicated multiplayer chess game um, for the region with um, Turkey and Syria, you know, very much at um, in each other's crosshairs, um, but also at the same time kind of chromatic 
um, uh, they, have, they have pragmatic leaders who are just trying to to you know maximize their their positions um, in every round of the of the game. Um, so uh, I would say you know kind of coming up to the present that um, while there is absolutely no love lost um, between the two leaders, um, uh, what used to be a non-negotiable point for the Turkish government, which was um, uh, the um, the, the ability of the Assad regime to remain in power, I think they're very much reconciled to this in practical terms now, um, and and simply looking to carve out um, uh, their own space in the the sort of um, the emerging territorial picture that is that is um, coalescing um, in Syria, and this this whole sort of recent, most recent crisis is is a part of that story. Uh, uh, all right. And so let, let's move into that most recent crisis. What, what are some of the fault lines that, that you've already laid out that are triggered by what we just saw over the last few months? Um, OK, sure. So uh, so there's, um, you know, a couple things going on. And, and I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who you know, specializes in the study of sort of, you know, Turkish, Turkey's politics and foreign policy. So I know less about the Syrian side of the equation. Sure. Um, but, uh, but, you know, from a Turkey perspective, you want to understand sort of, you know, what happened after that fateful phone call between uh, Donald Trump and Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Um, if you want to understand what happened there, um, uh, you know, it can really be read in the context of um, the, the, um, the security sort of, um, you know, thinkers and strategists um, in Ankara have been, um, increasingly worried by something that everyone in the region has noticed, for better or for worse, um, which is that the U.S. is just not that involved anymore. Uh, the U.S. Has, seems to be retreating from the region, gives mixed signals both to local partners on the ground and giving mixed signals to even European allies who you know, work with the U.S. on the ground. Um, and so the U.S. is not no longer perceived to be sort of a guarantor of very much um, in the region, um, and certainly this last move didn't, didn't do anything to, to, you know, change that impression. Um, so Turkey's been operating in a regional context where um, it's allied with the U.S. It's a NATO member, mm-hmm. um, but the U.S. has been supporting, um, you know, uh, an organization that is organically related to sort of. Um, what in the Turkish security establishment view are your public enemy number one, which is the the PKK. Um, so you have a, a real divergence of interest there um, at play. Um, in the meantime, um, the Syrian regime kind of is is uh, and is working with um, Russia and Iran to try and sort of um, you know stabilize the, the territories that it controls and sort of maybe claw back a little bit more kind of space influ- influence in the in the areas that it's lost. Um, and uh, Turkey is, you know, with the U.S. being much more absent and much more erratic in its presence um, when it is present um, in the region, um, Turkey has to take this alliance of uh, Damascus, Tehran, and in particular, it's not a formal alliance, but this sort of de facto alignment of um, these three actors and especially of Putin's Russia very, very seriously because um, Putin has played a very clever game in um in the region over the past few years and has gone from being having sort of one client in the region which was um the syrian government um to being um sort of the 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 biggest great power in town um and so turkey has to tread this fine line between a sort of western alliance western commitment um being a part of nato and wanting to have a say in what the borders are going to look like and the sort of post-war settlement in syria is going to look like 
um, uh, for which it needs to engage Russia and Iran and um, uh, and and even if it you know it's, it's really disappointed about this also the regime in Damascus. Um, and then within this context, the Kurds are, um, uh, had, as I mentioned, had been making quite a bit of headway in terms of um, lining up sort of discontiguous territories, um, creating corridors to, to kind of connect them and, and carve out a space in the region. And so when um, Erdogan realized that Trump was going to fully um, retract U.S. troops, um, he seized on the opportunity to go and basically knock a big hole in the in the um, stretch of territories that Kurds were lining up to um, kind of create a, a, an autonomous space. And so um, now there's a much more checkered map of the border zone, mm. um, and uh, and Turkey is basically um, uh, working together with um, a parole just had to had to get basically Moscow's approval. Um, uh, and so you know he's been playing a very kind of complex diplomatic um, dan- uh, game with um in order to sort of secure the space. But, you know, the Turkish gambit was basically, you know, not to invade Syria per se, but to um, knock the wind out of this, this sort of Kurdish, um, coalescing Kurdish sort of proto-state in the region. Um, and part of the argument, and, and so that, that's sort of the regional geopolitics of it, sort of the, you know, uh, um, the U.S. not being the, the guarantor, or the reliable ally that it used to be, the need to engage with these, you know, very fluid regional dynamics. Um, but then there's also the domestic part of the story because um, whenever you play, you know, whenever you rally people around the flag um, and say the nation is under under siege and we need to, you know, um, uh, send troops to save to save the nation, um, that is often a, a um, something that is often a move that that gets leaders' popularity. Um, and in this case, uh, uh, President Erdogan has been facing quite a few challenges on the home front, so he also played this card. Um, in order to try and pump up some some sort of um, some some good old fashioned you know nationalism at um, at home um, because he's he's facing a lot of challenges within his own party certainly um, from the political opposition within uh, the con- the country and there's a flagging economy so this is kind of a way to sort of um, to um, to uh, to see the victory a short term yeah. victory in stabilize power probably right. Exactly. So it speaks yeah. to that. It, um, that's also part of the picture. Well, you know, I can only imagine that we are going to see more and more uh, uh, interesting developments out of this region, considering the fact that both of those leaders, Assad and Erdogan, are, you know, strong men and strong men very rarely either stay in power or leave power quietly. So, uh, right. Uh, in fact, one of the one of the big dilemmas that they, they face, you know, when we work on this stuff in the academy is um uh, is the the dilemma they face when they get old. The ones that manage to stay in power, um, when they get old, they have a real hard time figuring out who the successor is going to be um, uh, because they don't have exit strategies, right? Because yeah. You can't really happily retire after you've been a strong man for um, many years. Um, so, uh, indeed, it, it's... Um, but I would say, you know, right now, uh, in sort of the regional accounting, um, uh, the past few weeks um, translate into a sort of a scorekeeping that has uh has 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 boosted Erdogan but not you know not in any sort of lasting or, or permanent Meaningful, way but yeah. um he's he has played his cards uh from his perspective um quite successfully in the past few weeks well 
Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I know it is extraordinarily illuminating from my perspective, and I know from our listeners, they thank you as well. Uh, our guest has been Nora Fisher Onar. She, again, is an assistant professor of international studies at the University of San Francisco, and you can get her book, Istanbul, Living with Difference in a Global City. Nora, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Politics! What do you say we wrap up this Big buffet-sized edition of the program with a little bit of but your emails. You can always send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Ben writes, I was just listening to your interview with your mom and had a thought while you were discussing Mayor Pete's electability. Do you think it's possible... That if he were to get the nomination, he could get a quote-unquote sympathy vote or an outrage vote to win. Imagine a scenario where Trump is going off on one of his verbal jazz sessions and says some super offensive anti-gay slur or something about gay people that turns independence against him. Do you think that's possible? His racial statements didn't seem to change enough minds, but do you think a super homophobic set of statements might turn off enough of the population? This might come from some personal bias, as I know some gay men that are Republicans and have racially prejudiced views. They're not KKK bad, but they've been called out on statements before. So 45's racially toned comments didn't bother them, but I think that a strong enough homophobic attack might. Uh, No matter what, if Mayor Pete is the Democratic nominee, then sexuality is going to be a part of this race. There's just no doubt about it. Now, will we see a ginning up of homophobic rhetoric? Almost certainly on the the, the side of the the president's supporters, right? Um, I mean, hell, what, <laughs> most of the anti uh, uh, what what would be classified as homophobic stuff that I read about Mayor Pete now comes from the gay community (laughs) who don't like him because he's not progressive enough. But I I think we would see something like that. And when I put it past Trump to say something off color, of course not. Do I think that it would swing the election? (sighs) I don't know. Uh, Democrats would really have to rally around the first ever gay president. I think that's, it would be more about solidifying a Democratic vote than uh, activating an independent vote, in my opinion. All right, next email. For those of you who are not aware, there was an amazing clip uh, from a few weeks ago about Eric Swalwell, the former presidential candidate, current representative, talking about the Ukraine impeachment stuff on Hardball, and it sounded quite a bit like he farted in crystal clear audio. So I spent some time on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young, trying to recreate it with a mug. Recreate the sound with a mug because that's what Hardball said the sound was. It indeed was not a cheek clapper, but a innocent mug sound. So Mark wrote back to me. After watching your thorough analysis in reference to Swalwell, I discovered that such a cheek clapper could be produced by a coffee holder. My setup, 
32-ounce Yeti filled with cold brew, and important to note that the bottom is not flat, but rather raised around the edges with a plateaued dip in the middle, have a fake wood desk, and then a gentle rotating action. Boom. A near-butt demon sound was birthed. I hope that you enter this information into the formal flatulence record for former inquiry and the betterment of posterity. In God, we blast. And finally, Sean writes, Article 2 says that the president has ultimate authority over foreign policy, but how does that square with congressionally appropriated aid packages? Can the president legally overrule congressional aid? Is it like a veto where Congress can force it? You know, I don't think we've ever had a situation like that. Uh, uh, You know, really, I think it's another part of this impeachment thing that is hard for the average American to wrap their head around is people don't know the rules around this stuff. And to be honest, I don't know if the State Department necessarily does either. There's operating principle, but who knows? All right. Again, you can write in theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. And that'll wrap us up for today. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier. Andrew, Squids, Jamie, Ryan, Adam, Jonathan, D-Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. If you want to join their ranks or just go ahead and become a $3 member. And that means you get two bonus episodes per week. Hell, this week, because we did the preview of Raise the Dead, that's five episodes. An episode every single day of the week. Well, you can head on over. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Kick some money in as we get ready to hit the road next year. A reminder that you can follow me at Justin R. Young on Twitter and Instagram and You can download archived episodes of this show at politicspoliticspolitics.com. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying politics has three names. And I know a show that talks about politics. I heard that show you recommended that talks about politics. And there's somebody that used to run a political campaign that's got one that talks about politics. But this is the only show that talks about all... Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>